This podcast is for parents like you, navigating the world of neurodiversity with love and compassion. I'm a neurodivergent mother of three amazing neurodivergent children and a board-certified music therapist. Our mission is to create a supportive space where you feel understood, connected, and inspired. With practical tips, strategies, and resources, we'll help you and your child thrive in your unique way. Join us as we dive deep into the diverse world of neurodivergent individuals, exploring topics like ADHD, autism, dyslexia, sensory processing challenges, and more. We'll cover it all to empower, educate, and uplift both neurodivergent individuals and those who walk alongside them. Together, we'll create a world where every brain is valued and celebrated. We're excited to embark on this enlightening journey with you. We are your hosts, Samantha Foote and Lauren Ross, and this is the Every Brain is Different podcast. Welcome to the Every Brain is Different podcast. We are here with Amanda Androsco. Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the show. We are so excited to talk with you. And um, oh yeah, for sure. Um, Amanda is an attorney licensed in Idaho, New Mexico, and Texas. With over 16 years of experience, her primary practice areas include trust and estate planning, business formation, probate, and family personal emergency planning. Amanda has been recognized as Idaho's best business law firm for 2023, Boise Weekly's best law firm for 2023, the platinum winner in both estate lawyers and lawyers categories for Community Votes Boise, and according to expertise.com, Amanda is one of the best probate lawyers in Boise for 2021 and 2022, best probate lawyers in Meridian for 2022, and best business lawyers in Boise for 2022. She is also regularly featured as um, Light FM's 107.9 Industry Ace for Law. Amanda graduated from Texas Tech School of Law in 2007. She is happy to have settled with her husband and two children in the beautiful Treasure Valley. She enjoys the natural beauty of Idaho and all four seasons. Amanda's true love is planning, especially trust. Her approach to planning is a process that she calls wills and wishes. She explains her process by saying, I love to talk with people and understand their unique circumstances and wishes in order to craft plans that accomplish their goals. I enjoy taking time to explain and ensure understanding for a more meaningful interaction. My plans are not cookie cutter, and my goal is to establish long-term relationships with my clients. Amanda, wow, you are amazing. And I know people that have worked with you. I still need to work with you personally, but I know people that have worked with you and they just love your work. Um, So can you tell us a little bit more about how you're involved in the neurodivergent community? Well, um, what I would say is um, I obviously offer services, attorney planning services. Um, So I'm certainly not in the deep end of the pool uh, of the neurodivergent community. Um, but what I can do is when um, I find families who have uh, needs where they have a child or children or um, other loved one that they want to care for and they need to make a plan that will suit their needs, I really like to sit down with them and help um, help them understand their options and make the best choices possible. Yeah, and that's a lot of people, that's what they worry about when they first get the diagnosis. They're like, what's going to happen to my child when I'm not here anymore? Right. So can you tell us a little bit more about your journey, how you got here, and then what um, what exactly you do, like go more into depth of what you do with clients? Well, um, I'm an attorney and I've been licensed since 2007. 
Um, so I've done this for a while. I'm licensed in three states, as you mentioned. Um, I've been in Idaho uh, since 2017. Um, we got here at the tail end of 17, and uh, I've been licensed here since 2018. Um, so I've been focused on um, primarily planning law, as, as you had explained, and I shifted towards that as I began to see that there was... Um, just a need for customized plans, which would result from actually having a meaningful conversation with the person that needs the plan. So what I was seeing and, and what's very common is that people were either helping themselves uh, by doing it online, but not having a complete understanding of the choices. Uh, the drop-down boxes and things aren't quite the same as having feedback and a person who can explain to you. Um, it's not as much as we have AI and things now, it's still not the same as having an attorney with experience that can ask the right questions and give you enough information and kind of run scenarios so that you can have a meaningful understanding of your options. So people that are doing their own forms often run into those kinds of issues, but even people that go to the trouble of going to a law firm um, or an attorney Often they just get very superficial kind of one-size-fits-all plans where there just wasn't enough discussion. So sometimes it's not even really discovered that there is a neurodivergent um, member of the family um, or that there could be plans or perhaps better ways of planning for it. So my journey was in coming to a point of realizing that instead of focusing on litigation, which is where a lot of attorneys um, want to spend their time because obviously litigation fees add up quickly, um, I decided that I'd rather spend my time having meaningful conversations with families and individuals and helping them really have a grasp of how it all works. So that's sort of how I came to my um, method of planning. Yeah, I love that, that you that you work individually with um, clients, because I know when I did my will, I, I did it online and I have no idea if I even did it right. I just know my most important thing was that my kids had somewhere to go if something happened to me. And I know that that's in there, but there's probably a bunch of other things that I have not thought about that need to happen. So can you just give like parents some strategies that they can use um, when, when planning about this? Like when they go to a lawyer, what should they be asking? What should they be thinking about? All of that. Well, so oftentimes I've found that attorneys um, locally will recommend um, just a basic will uh, for individuals and families. Um, but the problem with a will is that a will has to go through probate. Um, so probate is a legal process of essentially filing a case against yourself and giving uh, or having a loved one file it against you after you've passed away um, and giving a forum uh to loved ones to be heard and creditors um, as far as if there's, you know, any challenge that needs to be heard. But otherwise, if, if no one is contesting and no one has any concerns, then the court will uh, go through and make sure that certain things have been done, such as notice to creditors, notice to um, the beneficiaries, which would be the people uh, that would receive the gifts, or they're actually called devisees in, in a will, but um, or heirs if there wasn't a will. And so this whole process is something called probate. And sometimes it can be complex and expensive. Um, sometimes it can be uh, fairly straightforward, but at a minimum, it's going to take at least six months, sometimes longer. And that delay 
um, can make things difficult as far as, you know, keeping the ball rolling and making sure that uh, your loved ones have um, less to worry about. Uh, so when there's not a discussion of exactly what a will means, um, sometimes people get um, a result that's not what they had intended. So having discussion to say, you know, is a will the way we want to go? It's cheaper, but there's, it's sort of like saving the drama and expense for later, right? Um, whereas with a trust, you can transfer your assets to the trust. Uh, there's different types of trusts, but the primary one that I'm going to talk about is called a living trust. And um, you can transfer it during your lifetime. And it just makes a nice, neat little package for the persons that are going to step in and take over later. The other nice thing about it is if you have uh, insurance, for example, and so it's your plan to, if you can't be there for your whole child's life to, which, you know, at some point you're not, right? Yeah. Um, the natural order of things, um, you want to leave something for them. Well, there's a lot of mistakes that get made there because if you name the individual on the policy, then if they're over the age of 18, it essentially goes to them right? And they may not be the person that can best manage the assets for themselves, or it may be a situation where if they're on Medicaid or something like that, it could jeopardize their benefits. And then the money is not going to supplement and make their lives better, but instead it's going to replace something that they already had covered by um, government benefits, right? So all of these kinds of discussions of figuring out, well, what are the assets? What's your basic plan? How do you want this to work? And finding the places where you might be able to redirect it instead of to an individual, but to a trust, things like that, um, can really make a difference. Yeah, that is a lot to think about that I never even considered. I never knew the difference between a will and a trust. I'm just going to say that right now. I knew that trusts were better, but I did not know like all that difference. So, and it, you know, it's it's a case by case scenario. Sometimes there's some situations where. In a couple, um, on the first passing, there, there are methods and ways of avoiding a full-blown probate for the surviving spouse. But then at the second death, there, there will be um, a probate unless there's no real property. Um, I mean, there are always exceptions. There's always someone who can kind of come up with the, aha, but in this you know random circumstance, there wouldn't need a probate. But uh, for the most part, it's a kind of like, pay a little now, pay a lot more later. And But even if it's not so much about how much money it is, it's the emotional cost and it's the um, irreparable harm that can be done when, for example, I've had situations where a great aunt uh, named her niece to inherit for, or it, it, people think of it as inheriting, but essentially to be the divisee under her will. And she left her estate to her um, and that was it. So she didn't leave it to a trust for her benefit or anything like that. So as soon as the aunt died, it, the interest essentially passed, even though they had to go through probate, um, to this uh, client of mine. And so she came, comes to me desperate because she's like, I've been on Medicaid for a really long time. She has a lot of diagnoses. She really needs a lot of medical care. And so she's panicking because she's saying, they're saying they're going to send me this money and I, I want to know what I can do. Can I refuse to take it? And the answer is no. Unfortunately, that is essentially fraud to, you know, refuse a gift like that so that you can continue to be on those benefits. So instead, if her aunt had simply put it in a special needs trust for her, I mean, it's fairly easy to put that kind of language into your plan to say, hey, 
but you know, hold it for her benefit, she could have had the aunt's money and her benefits, and it would have supplemented um, her benefits during her lifetime. So it makes a big difference. And once once it's done, it's done, and you can't pull it back. Another thing that I've seen happen is leaving money to uh, your brother, for example, and not your brother. I don't know if you have one or not, but yeah. um, to take care of your kids with this idea of he's going to be their guardian. He's going to use this insurance money to take care of them. Uh, so he's going to be, it's, you know, my spouse. And then the next person in line is my brother. Cause we all know the plan. Well, except for the fact that then it's your brother's money and no one cares what the private interfamily details were of that money. So if he has a creditor, that money can be gone. And nobody cares that it was supposed to be for the kids. That's it's his money. It's titled in his name. It's in his account. It can be garnished. Whereas yeah. <laughs> if you had put it through uh, to a trust or even a uniform transfers to minors act, which is a UTMB account, um, there are some limitations uh, with the things you can accomplish with those, but both of those would have been preferable uh, to just transferring it to another person who um, is going to manage it for them. Yeah. So when, let's say like I have life insurance mm -hmm. and the first beneficiary is my husband and then the next one is my kid, like my kids, does that work? Like, how does that work? <laughs> it works if you're okay with each of your children getting their share of the insurance outright when they turn 18, mm -hmm. then that could work. If one or more of them would really need that money managed for them um, or to have, have some sort of strings attached so that they don't um, have themselves, um, you know, where they blow through the money or uh, just, you know, um, bad investments or different things just because of age or, um, you know, differences um, that make them, I mean, any 18 year old, their brain is still mush. I mean, their yeah. frontal lobe finished developing until they're 25. So yeah, um, I've, I've met plenty of young people who are very squared away and very intelligent, um, but they still may not have the um, cognitive capacity to really manage assets, especially a large amount of assets well. Um, and so it just depends on how comfortable you are with them having it and understanding that it's going to go to them when they turn 18. Um, also, if they're nowhere near 18, then you have a problem of you're going to have to have some loved one that can step up on their behalf and file uh, to be able to have the court create that type of account for them. So you can end up having additional litigation and expense um, because a minor can't, they, the insurance company can't cut a check to a minor. Um, and the guardian isn't necessarily automatically able to uh, take the funds either. So it's like an additional, in Idaho, we divide um, guardianship of a person from conservatorship of a finance, like a financial account. That makes sense. So everything I thought was a lie. Cool. Uh <laughs> well, and the funny thing is, I didn't even know that you had done your own mm -hmm. plan. Um, we hadn't talked about that. So, but it's so typical and it's so common that that's, I'm not psychic. I just, it's, that's how people do things these days. Yeah. So if you have a trust and you can say, my insurance is going to go to this, to my kid, but this is going to be the person that's fine. That's responsible for my kid's money until my kid becomes some age. So you can do it. Yeah. You can have a trust named as the beneficiary. 
And then the insurance company doesn't get to know the details of how those the funds are going to be managed and for who. They just need a name to put on the check. And they can mail it. They can um, transfer it to a trust easily as long as the trust already exists. So sometimes there's a type of trust that can be done where you um, put it in a will. And, and so it's called a will with a testamentary trust. Um, and I... I use them when I have scenarios where it's families that have young children. They don't have a whole lot of assets. Uh, they feel like they might need a trust if something happens to them while their children are minors or under you know, 25 or so. Um, but they don't feel like they have enough to justify doing a trust now. So it's sort of like if something bad happens and we, we our kids need a our money managed till they're 25, then we want to be able to lay out how that would work. And so you spell out all of that in your will. But unfortunately, it's sort of like the best of, I mean, the worst of both worlds, because you have to probate the will to be able to have someone appointed that will have the authority to create the trust. But at the yeah. very least, the insurance and anything else um, that you named to be in a situation where like you named um, that you intended to do a trust or you intended there's ways of doing it and you need to talk to your insurance company on it, how they prefer it done. But um, because it's not going to a named individual like your brother, the funds just get stuck essentially in your estate um, until that trust is created. So it's still better than a situation where the, the check is cut and now no one can do anything with it until uh, the court takes further action or it's gone to someone who's going to have it garnished or is going through a divorce or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So that's one method of doing it. But if you've established a living trust during your lifetime, then it's easy because the funds can just be collected right away. Cool. Can you the trust have... that I didn't mention doesn't go through probate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you, can you have a trust and a will or is it a trust within a will? Like, can you have both simultaneously? So typically most attorneys that draft trust will, tr I can't talk, will draft a special type of will called a pour over will. And so it's literally P-O-U-R, pour over. So if you think of it as there's stuff that gets stuck in your uh, personal basket um, when you pass away. So an example of that would be um, a, you know, if you didn't properly do an insurance designation and it failed or there was some sort of issue with it, that could be stuck in your personal estate, um, a final tax return, a wrongful death claim. Uh, so someone runs you over sort of thing. Um, those aren't the types of things that you could have transferred during your lifetime. Um, so those types of assets get stuck in your personal estate. And you've got this trust over here that's holding everything else you already transferred to to it, like your residence, you know, business interests, accounts, um, life insurance policies, if you change the beneficiary to be the trust and so forth. So it's got most of it here, but there could be some stuff left here. And then it just pours into the trust. If you don't do that, if you say, no, I'm going to, you know, try to cut corners and I just want to trust and don't want to will. Um, and you have any of that stuff crop up or there's a final bill that needs to be disputed, maybe insurance wasn't billed properly or whatever, then it has to go through a process that's still probate, but it's an intestate probate, which means without a will. And then your um, it's looking at what's called your heirs at law. So it could be a situation where it may work out the same. It's going to go to your spouse or it's going to go to your kids. 
But in scenarios where there is no spouse or kids, because, you know, sometimes um, it just happens that way, then it could end up going to your parents, which is weird. I've always thought that was weird that it goes up to parents, but um, or out to your siblings or some other result that you wouldn't have wanted. And it can't be avoided if you don't have a will. So if you have a trust and then you don't do a pour over will, but for some reason you do like a regular will, you go to an, a different attorney or there's some, it would still work. It's just anything that was left outside of the trust that's in your personal estate would pass according to the terms of your will through probate and everything else over here would still go through just the trust. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes. It's, all, it's a lot, but yes. Can you talk a little bit more about special needs trusts and how those work? So special needs trusts are tricky. Um, it's not something that uh, you can put together for yourself um, because it's involving federal money um, and because there's not a lot of it, even though there's, you know, a lot of it, there's just so many, so much need um, that it's an ever dwindling pot. And uh, so it's really regulated. And if they can find a, an issue or a problem, with the way the assets are being managed, then it can be a situation where it is um, essentially back in the estate or assets of the individual who is dependent on Medicaid. And then once you have too many, you know, too much money, uh, even yeah. if it's not much money, um, it can disqualify you for Medicaid. So um, what you'll do is it's not something um, that you typically can create for yourself. It's um, the best for, I mean, there are some versions of what's called first party special needs trust, but they're fairly uncommon. Um, so what I mainly do is I help parents and grandparents create trusts for their loved ones um, so that when the money comes through, and so this can happen too, where mom and dad, you know, they've, they've got debt, they've got student loans, they've got all kinds of craziness. And except for the insurance they've got, they have nothing to pass on to their children children, but grandma and grandpa do. So making sure that we get that special needs trust set up can be just the thing to catch the money um, before it goes to the child in a way that's going to get blown through because of just their age or um, differences or um, <clears throat> uh, or it can uh, be a situation that it makes them disqualified. So what Hopefully I'm that. hearing is it's complicated and talk to someone like you. If you're yeah. in Idaho, talk to talk to you. <laughs> and I, I wanted I wanted like a clear cut, like this is what you do. But I it's like you said, it's based on your own individual needs and mm -hmm. what assets you have and how many kids you have and you know what kids have disabilities. And so you have to take all that into consideration and your values and how you want things managed. And sometimes there seems to be things that are like obvious answers, like, oh, of course we would do it this way, or, you know, um, so-and-so will step in and do this or that. But having the knowledge to know that having an individual who may be residing in California, managing what would become an irrevocable trust uh, can potentially subject all of the income of trust, the trust if for an Idaho child and an Idaho trust could potentially sub be subject to California income taxes because of that decision. I mean, there's just like a whole lot that goes into it and looking at each specific asset to try to decide what goes in, what stays out. And having that conversation is um, typically way more than what I'm seeing um, that the other practitioners are doing, but it's 
I mean, I don't want to use this time to be like a, you know, pick me kind of thing. Yeah. It's just understanding the sort of conversations to be having. And so if you're talking with someone who's sort of not really taking the time and just kind of saying, you know, this is simple, this is easy, we're Idaho, we're, you know, not California, you don't need these types of things, maybe taking an oversimplistic view of, of your needs and not really listening to you or hearing or learning enough about your family to understand that, hey, maybe this isn't the cookie cutter family that, that, that I thought they were. Um, so yeah, those are the things that I would recommend at a minimum. If you're not going to be able to go in and create a living trust right now, um, I get it. The economy is awful. And every time I go to the grocery store, I'm, I'm just blown away. Um, and don't even get me started. I'm filling up my truck, right? So yeah. I get it. Um, things can be expensive. At a minimum, I would look to make sure that you have a durable power of attorney using the Idaho form uh, for finances that will enable someone to be able to step in and make sure your bills are paid, your taxes, taxes are filed, those types of things, including your spouse, because being husband and wife doesn't really mean anything for that. It doesn't give, we're community property state, but all that means is that each spouse potentially has a, like a half ownership interest. It doesn't enable the spouse to do things with the other spouse's interest absent an additional authority, like a durable power of attorney, right? So being able to do that is going to make it easier for your spouse to be able to step in and manage things that you typically manage. Um, Also medical directive, so that there is someone that can um, be provided with information, your um, protected HIPAA information that otherwise would not be freely shared with your spouse um, and give them the authority to make decisions for you when you can't make those decisions. And then those same documents are necessary for your adult children. So if your adult children have capacity to be able to understand and consent essentially If they are able to enter into a contract, so they have to be over the age of 18 and they have to have an understanding of what they're legally obligated to do. So we can't have situations where a person is incapacitated, you know, very low functioning and, you know, unable to um, understand and and carry on a, a conversation to be able to or at least nod or something so that the attorney understands that they they understand um, what they're consenting to. Um, but absent that, if they are able to do so, then getting them in as soon as possible to sign those documents will make a big difference so that you can assist them um, with those medical decisions and, and other things. So th- those would be conversations that I would have. And those documents are not very expensive. Um, they're available online, but you know, it's kind of it makes me nervous on whether or not it'll make sense and that you'd select the right portions. Yeah. I've seen uh, people bring in the forms that they've created or that their loved one created for them and, and they're not filled out right. They're not, you know, there's boxes that were left unchecked or they've somehow form, found a form that's not the, you know, the uniform form. So it's kind of a, yeah. Okay. A risky thing. Can you... Um, with regards to adults that, you know, don't have the capacity to take care of themselves and make decisions, can you talk about the difference between a guardianship and a power of an attorney and when you would want to use either or? 
Okay. So if the adult uh, child, for example, had capacity, but then lost it. So, um, you know, God forbid your child is um, doing great and goes in after his 18th birthday, signs up all the documents, you know, mom explained that he should probably do, and then was in an auto accident and suffered a, a traumatic brain injury, right? So now they've lost capacity. Then that would be a scenario where you would have a durable power of attorney that you could continue to use. But if you have an individual who's incapacitated and can't consent to things like that on their own, then your only option would be to do a conservatorship for finances, financial decision, and a guardianship for um, medical or like person-based decisions. So where if you were going to have them live in a group home or something, for example. Um, so in Idaho, we typically do um, a joint petition, which means that you can get both things at the same time. And there's even options for doing an emergency um, temporary appointment until other hearings and things can be had, uh, depending on the situation. So normally emergency is, uh, you know, that there's something bad happening or going to happen if the court doesn't ask, act right away. Um, and otherwise that you would need to wait and go through the process of having notice given to individuals and in, in a, a timing for hearing and so forth. Yeah. Um, so if people want to learn more, uh, where can they go to find you? Um, so they can uh, set up a complimentary consult where we can talk about what what they need because sometimes what you're told to ask for or what you think you need is not really what you need. So I've had individuals ask me for things like a power of attorney, but it's not, uh, it's a no-go for their situation. And so then we start talking about things like conservatorship. Um, so to have a consultation, uh, you would go to my website and that is androscolaw.com uh, slash contact will take you directly to um, the link where you can give me a little bit of your information. And then once my uh, system has that, it can shoot an email to the email you provide uh, with a link to my consultation calendar. Otherwise, I don't just put it on my um, uh, like my main page uh, because then I had lots of people offering to come clean my office and you know oh yeah that I didn't yeah. want so maybe I should take it off my main page for my consultations. Um, <laughs> so our last question is, what do you do for fun? Oh, well, it's always typically involves my children. Yeah. Um, I have two daughters, 12 and eight. And so depending on the time of year, if it's uh, summer, we like to kayak and go camping. And um, this time of year, we like pumpkin patches and playing in leaves and just um, making memories and, and messes. <laughs> and um, I, my kids actually have an event tonight they're going to with their dad and I'm going to be all alone. And I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> so I, I figure I'll probably work or clean. Yeah. I don't know. So, well, I hope you find something that you enjoy doing. And yeah, good luck. <laughs> it's always weird being alone. Like you're like, I'm alone. What do I do? What do I do? <laughs> I have all these great ideas, but yeah. it's like, maybe I could just take a nap. I don't yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you. Never we appreciate you coming on. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope the discussion on neurodiversity has provided you with support, understanding, and inspiration. 
you found our podcast valuable, please share it with others who may benefit from our insights and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Hit the follow button and let's keep exploring the fascinating world of neurodiversity. Click the link in our show notes to visit our website for a free download of three tips for a stronger relationship with your child.